0: We're in the book of 1 Thessalonians, making our way through. This evening we're going to be looking at just a small text in chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 7 and verse 8. And we'll be seeing a little bit of Paul's affection and love for the people of this church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 starting in verse 7. Paul writes, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would write your word upon our hearts. That you would bless us richly with the truth that we could not find. Lord, we could not come up with the truth of your word. But you had to give it to us. And I pray that we would search it out and seek your wisdom and your will in it. I pray, Lord, as we think about this topic of affection for one another. Lord, would you give us greater affection... For our church. Lord would you let. Love affect. How we speak to one another. How we treat one another. How we long for one another. And how we live. With one another. I pray that our church. Would glorify you. By the kind of love that we share. Even here with one another. And we pray all of this. In Jesus name. Amen. Last week. Pastor Wegner started preaching through this section in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it's really all connected together. It all is about Paul's defense of his own ministry. Uh, one of the interesting things about Paul's ministry, and maybe it just has to do with the fact that the world hates the gospel or the fact that, that there were um, salesmen going around selling their philosophies at the time, but... Wherever Paul went, there was always an air of suspicion about him. People thought he had false motives. People thought he was greedy, or they assumed the worst about him. And so it's very common that in his letters, he gives a defense of his ministry. And last week, Pastor Wagner uh, focused on uh, perhaps the negative aspect of that defense. That is what Paul is saying he did not do. And so... Just in summary, a few of those things. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul reminded them that his ministry was not a vain ministry. It wasn't a useless thing that he was doing. It was a real ministry of power, and it had a real purpose. In verse 2, he goes on to remind them that it was not an easy ministry. Paul was not uh, being chauffeured from town to town with all of Uh, the nicest clothing. He was not a wealthy man. No, in fact, he suffered greatly for the gospel. It was that important to him. And then in verses 3 through 5, he presses that his ministry was not with false or deceptive or selfish motives. He's very honest. He says, I'm not selling lies. I'm not trying to cheat you. I'm not doing anything from impurity or from greed. And he summarizes that entirely by saying, I'm not doing what I do for the approval and praise of men. I do what I do for the approval and praise of God. Now in verses 7 through 8, he moves to the positive defense of his ministry. And you might imagine that here's where Paul is going to lay out his track record. He's going to talk all about... The many churches that he's pastored. He's going to talk about all of his credentials and his wide studies. At least that's what we think he would do. That's what we would be tempted to do if we were going to defend ourselves. But no, look at what he focuses on in his defense. He focuses on his character. He focuses on his love and his affections. He says, you want to know that I am a true minister of God. Look at how I care for you. Look at how I love you. And that's the mark that he gives them, that he has sincere love, an honest love, a pure love. And it is for the church itself. There's somewhat of a danger, perhaps, that in the church we can have something that sort of resembles love, but in reality it's a bit superficial at times. It's surface level or shallow. It's a love that maybe doesn't always reach to the heart and penetrate our will and our affections. And so a text like this is of the utmost importance for a church that wants to love well. For a people that want to show love to one another properly and with deep affection before God. And so that's what this text is about. Uh, I've got two points for us. One is love for the sake of others. We see that here. Love for the sake of others. Two, love with all of your heart. Start with the first point. Love for the sake of others. Uh, It is true, and we see it here, that love is not about us. It is always something that flows out of one person toward another person or object. It always moves from one to another. Husbands love their wives. Wives love their own husbands. You might think of friends who love one another. The great verse is, God so loved the world. So love is not an impractical, theoretical, up-in-the-clouds thing. It's a very real thing that moves from a person to another person. It shows us that love is not about us. And we see this in a variety of ways in this text. First, notice Paul's concern for his companion's reputation. You might have missed this, but I don't want you to miss it. He's not only defending himself in these verses, but he's also defending the work of his missionary partners. I think about how he opens up this letter in verse 1. He, he attaches the names Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy And you see this plural focus all throughout the text that we have before us. Notice he says, we were gentle. We were ready to share. You had become very dear to us. So he's always using the plural pronouns. He's emphasizing the role that the other missionaries took and had in this love that he gave to the church. In other words, he doesn't take all of the credit. He's not highlighting himself... He's not putting himself up above the others that he worked with. No, on the contrary, he considers Timothy and Silas and Sylvanus to be worthy ministry partners. They're faithful ministers and they're worthy of being honored alongside of him. And so Paul doesn't downplay their role. He wants the church to remember them. He's, in a sense, saying to them, don't you remember Timothy who loved you so much? Don't you remember Sylvanus, who taught you? ...and led you in so many ways. And Paul does this all the time in his letters. He does it often. For example, at the ends of his letters... ...at the end of Romans, I just went and pulled out a few names. He mentions Phoebe and Prisca and Aquila... ...and Mary and Andronicus and Junia... ...and he goes on and on... ...describing each one and their particular role... ...and how useful and valuable that they are to the gospel work. You can think of the book of Philippians... ...where he spends ten whole verses commending Timothy and Epaphroditus, talking about how they've risked disease and they've traveled long distance, that they're faithful, that they're godly men, that they deserve honor and respect for what they're doing. He always wants to give credit to those around him. He always wants to boast in those around him, those that he loves. Perhaps it's something of a sinful universal that every person at some level believes that They are not being noticed enough for their deeds. And if we're honest, we can also be tempted with that. We want to be praised. We want to be acknowledged. We always want uh, ourselves to be the center of the focus. But see here that love banishes that sin. Love makes us forget about ourselves. It helps us to see the value of others around us. Maybe you could apply this as sort of a test for yourself. Do you want to know if you love people? Ask yourself, how highly do I speak about them? Am I the kind of person who brags about my church friends? Who brags about the love of other Christians? Who boasts in the wisdom that other Christians have because I love talking about the work of my friends? Well, We see his commendation of them. We also see Paul sacrificing love. He says to start... But we were gentle among you. We might ask, what does that mean to be gentle? Well, I think we can only understand this in context. If you look back at verse 6, he ends that verse by saying, we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And I think that's what he means by gentleness. He was making sure not to overplay his authority. He didn't want to domineer them. He didn't want to push them around. Instead, he wanted to bless them and to work for them in everything. And he was giving, you might say, not receiving. He was doing what he could to bless them and to be a benefit to them, not to take from them. He was sacrificing, not demanding. And that's one of the fruits of love that we see here. It's gentleness. It's a carefulness not to harm. It's a caution around one another to make sure that we do not overburden, that we do not harm in any way. It's a consideration of others. You might think of that vow that doctors take. When doctors get their license, often they will take a vow where they are to do no harm. It's very simple. It's similar to that in Christian life we do no harm to one another out of love for each other and then Paul goes on to give an example of this we see that example in verse 7 he says like a nursing mother taking care of her own children and Paul's a great teacher at this point because what a be- what a great illustration of gentleness can you think of anything more gentle than a mother taking care of of her own child. After all, a child is precious. A child is fragile. A child requires constant care and attention and focus. A child needs feeding and changing and comforting and love and warmth and interaction all of the time. It's a great responsibility to have gentleness to a child. And one way you can say that This gentleness describes a great sacrifice because that's what a mother is doing. Sacrificing greatly for her child. She gives herself totally to the task of caring for and raising a child. And I think that this is a good picture of selfless love. It is self-sacrificing. It is helping. It is nurturing. It is building up. It's giving up of time and money and resources and energy and sweat all for the benefit of others. Not for our personal gain, but it is entirely invested in the good of others, just like a mother to her child. And that's the kind of love that we so need in the church. That's the kind of love that we must seek to flourish And to build up in our midst. That's the kind of love that will be such a blessing to our church. And such a witness to this world. Really it's the very love of Christ. Just consider how Christ lives for you. And how he has lived for you. Christ who did not cling to his glory. Christ who took on our human weakness. Christ who walked in our place. Christ who bore our punishment. Christ who rose for our justification. Christ who presently sits at the right hand of God and intercedes and pleads for you. That is self-sacrificing love. It is constant. It is gentle. It is giving. And that is the kind of love that we so need here in our church. A second point for us tonight love with all of your heart. Second thing we see is that love engages the whole person. love can't be trivial. It can't be momentary. It can't be something that is here and then gone. Rather, it is something that in a blessed way consumes all of us. It reaches down into our affections. It reaches down into our minds, into our wills. It requires everything of us. We see that in our text. Look at verse 8. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you. I love this verse. It almost describes a longing that Paul has for the people of God. He thinks about them and he yearns for them. Because he loves them, very practically, he wants to be with them. In fact, we see often that he's looking for ways to get back to them. He wants to be there with them. He loves them, and so he wants to see them face to face. We see this in verse 17, just a little bit ahead. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Here's another wonderful test of love. Do we long to be with one another? Do we yearn the way Paul yearns to be with the church? Maybe I could go so far as to say, do we think of the church, not this building, but the people here as a kind of home for us, a place that we want to be, people that we cherish and love to be with. You know, there's always a sense in which I go on a vacation or I go on a trip and I'm on some beautiful beach or I'm up in the mountains and it's wonderful. And I can usually last about a week, maybe two, if I'm really pushing it. Because eventually, I just want to be in my own bed. And I want to be in my own home. And I want to be where things are comfortable and where the food makes sense to me. And I want to know (laughs) what I know each and every day because that is comfort language for me. We should feel that same way about our church. We should long to be with the people of God often. That is peace. That is rest. That is a great blessing. Maybe we could modify Dorothy's famous line. She says that there's no place like home. Uh, I think we ought to say there is no place like my church. There's no place like my church. I want you to notice one other thing that Paul does here. Notice the words that he uses. He speaks of affection and of desire. And those are strong emotional descriptions... That he uses, in other words, he doesn't just see perhaps an earthly value in this in these people. Rather, he also feels something for them. Now, whenever it comes to the topic of emotions, it's true that we should not be controlled by our emotions, right? We should not be weeping people, uh, uncontrolled by our emotions or anything like this. But it is also true that biblically, our Emotion should flow from godly thinking. That good godly emotion should come from good godly thinking. And so when we begin to see the church as Paul saw it, as Christ's precious and beloved bride, the result is that we begin to feel as Christ felt for his church. And how often was it said that Christ had compassion for his sheep? How often was he tender hearted and affectionate toward them? If we're going to think rightly about the church, it will lead to feeling rightly about the church as well. Well, Paul goes on. In verse 8, he says, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul says, I shared the gospel. I preached and I taught. I evangelized and I labored day in and day out so that you would know the truth of the gospel. I even suffered for it and was shamefully treated on behalf of it. But that is not all that Paul did. He also shared himself. I shared the gospel with you and I shared to you myself. Literally in the Greek, I shared to you my own soul. I gave to you my very breath of life. I gave you my life itself. And so Paul was um, aware of this reality. That his life not only belonged to Christ... ...but it belonged to Christ's body. It belonged to Christ's church... ...of whom he is the head. And this, of course, indicates a covenant commitment... ...that we have. A covenant commitment of love. That is to say... When you belong to Christ by faith, you belong to his body. You are a package deal. You were bought together. You are forever bound by Christ and his love. You are purchased by one gospel. And Paul is showing us that we need to make that gospel and that gospel alone the basis and the foundation of our love. We need to see that it is the gospel of Christ that binds our hearts together. And we cannot replace that foundation with anything else. So I encourage you, don't make the standard of your love anything besides the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't make the standard of your love the one who is most useful to you. That's not a good standard. Don't make the standard... The one who recognizes your gifts the most. You say, I will love only those who value me. I will love those who praise me and cheer for me. No, instead, embrace those that God has given you. Embrace with love this local church. And there's something that amazing happens. When you make the gospel of Jesus the foundation of your love, then you go on to love people of which you have, frankly, nothing in common other than Christ. From an earthly perspective, you would never get along with that person. You would never know them or have any association with them. But for the gospel itself, you then come to love them. Once you make Christ the foundation of your love, you will love people who give you no earthly benefit whatsoever. You'll be able to say, that person doesn't really do anything for me. But I sure love them because they're in Christ. Maybe one other thing for you to think about here is that once you make Christ the foundation of your love, you may even begin to love people that, frankly, you don't even like that much. You may say, that personality really grates with mine. There's there's not a a lot of common interests there, but I can still love them. I can still love them because Christ loved them. I'll offer just a few practical considerations uh, by way of closing. Um, First, this kind of love takes time to grow. Uh, In a sense, love is like fine wine. It ages and it comes best through the years. And so I want to encourage you, don't merely measure your love as it is right now. If, If you measure only your love as it is right now, then we're in a whole lot of trouble but also measure your desire to grow in love measure yourself with the scale of sanctifying grace as well you might think of second peter chapter 1 where peter writes to the church add brotherly affection with love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This love will take great time, but is it increasing over time? Secondly, this love takes honesty and openness. And this is going to be more difficult for some, less so for others. That in the church, if we're going to love properly, we are going to have to open up. We are going to have to share ourselves just as Paul shared his own soul. And that, of course, requires opening up, being honest, being vulnerable. It's a reminder to us that love knocks down barriers, and it also knocks down the barriers that we ourselves have put up to guard our hearts and to guard ourselves from people around us. A third application or thought. This kind of love will change the world. It has always been true. That the way Christ will take the world is not by the sword. The world is not going to be won by philosophers and smooth talkers. The world is not going to be won by business savvy or by fancy tricks. It's not going to be won by any showiness or pizzazz. It is going to be won by humble, weak saints. Just like you and just like me. We think, how could it possibly be And the answer is because those same weak, lowly saints are motivated by the love of Christ. Christ himself said it. The world will know you by your love. And so in conclusion, you and I have been overwhelmingly, passionately loved by Christ. And so I encourage you as you dwell on that love, To then strive to show that love. In fact, be compelled by that love to spread the love of Christ to others. And what better place to start than with the saints right here in this room. Let's pray.